Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 176. In this episode, we're talking about Celebrities for Jesus with Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin Beatty is the editorial director for Brazos Press, who previously served as print managing editor at Christianity Today. She's also the co-host of Saved by the City podcast and the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church, published by Brazos. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Sidney Tooth, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So it was a real delight to have Caitlin Beatty on this episode to talk about her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, getting into some of the different personas and platforms that a lot of celebrity pastors have and and how that feeds into and, and kind of is born out of some problematic aspects of American Christianity and just thought she had a lot of insightful things to share with us. Madison, Chris, Sydney, what were some thoughts that you all had from our conversation with Caitlin? I really loved hearing Caitlin reflect on the role of institutions. That was something I really loved about the book, but um, I thought it was good to hear her flesh that out a little bit more and to think more positively. I have been critical of institutions from the beginning, and I've only received evidence uh, to support that. And so I really appreciate when people sort of push me towards a more hopeful posture, and she certainly did that. I really enjoyed our conversation um, and there were so many helpful aspects of it, but I think it was it was just great to sort of hear about the development of the phenomenon of celebrity pastor, how that's intersected with mass media and social media and, and how that plays out. And I think um, Caitlin did a really good job of, sh- of pointing to the dangers of that and things for pastors to be looking at in their own ministries in themselves. Um, I think it was a really helpful spotlight on those issues. Yeah, Caitlin's analysis and understanding of the American celebrity culture uh, within the church is a, is a powerful heuristic uh, for all of us uh, as we think about how, how we do church uh, and how we, how we relate to those uh, who are called to be pastors among us. Uh, but as well, it is a really genuine way of thinking about uh, some of the challenges and struggles that we have um, and and the differences in how that plays out in different areas. Uh, it's a great conversation that we had. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Caitlin Baby. Well, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So we're excited to talk about your book, uh, Celebrities for Jesus. Uh, Perhaps as a way to get started, could you tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what you're trying to do in that book? Maybe a little flyover Mm. of uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Celebrities for Jesus really started to foment as an idea when I was working at Christianity Today magazine, kind of the flagship evangelical publication. And in the nearly 10 years that I was working at the magazine, our staff received several tips and allegations about famous 
pastors, ministry leaders, people who are household names in the American church, even in the global church. And the more that we dug into those stories and, you know, unfortunately we had to report on them and seek to corroborate them and expose wrongdoing. uh, I, I really started to wonder how celebrity factors into those stories. Is celebrity a dynamic that actually makes it easier for somebody to misuse their platform or pedestal to misuse the power that comes with that and especially to evade accountability i i define celebrity in the book as social power without proximity and i think that without proximity is really the key to so much of what we see happening in these stories is that over time as someone's star was rising and they were getting more opportunities to speak and teach and maybe getting more money to do so, there seemed to be a growing lack of accountability. The fewer people could actually know the celebrity figure. And obviously all of us need people in our lives who know us deeply. And that's all the more true for leaders, for people in positions of spiritual authority. Um, So yeah, I, I wrote the book really wanting to identify how and why celebrity is such a factor in, seems to be such a a strong dynamic in the American church so that the body of Christ can be healthier in the U.S. and beyond. One of the parts of your definition, thanks, Caitlin, um, one of the parts of your definition that I really found interesting and I was kind of wrestling with as you were talking is the without proximity. And I was thinking about the various pastors that you mentioned, but one of the things, one of the stories that I found or characteristics of the stories that I found so striking was the um, idea that Hybels had um, like security guards and was really quite distant from members of his congregation. Is is that a pretty consistent feature, do you think, in celebrity pastors or, Mm -hmm. I mean, even in just abusive pastors? I mean, because Mm -hmm. there are some, there's sort of a Venn diagram there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting connection you've made about kind of as Bill Hybels became more and more Bill Hybels, kind of the brand most affiliated with the Willow Creek Association, globally speaking, the fewer people could even access him. And I do think, yeah, a common thread in a lot of these stories is a lack of accessibility. And I think this touches on our understanding or our model of what a pastor is and should be. Um, you know, in some of these stories, the pastor really isn't a shepherd of sheep. Maybe they started out that way, but over time, I mean, one, if your church is growing astronomically, it's going to be harder and harder for a shepherd to get to know the sheep in any real personal way. But also over time, the the role of the pastor isn't even so much to be a shepherd. It is to be a brand ambassador. It is to set the vision. It's to be a powerful communicator. You know, I think that is certainly a clear line in these stories is that celebrity pastors um, in a lot of cases became celebrities because they're incredible speakers and people flock to hear them and be inspired by their vision. Maybe they're passionate people who can really draw a crowd. And yet when you are coming to the church, hoping for pastoral care, hoping for guidance, hoping for someone to help you and your family in a crisis, it's probably, it's not going to be the quote unquote pastor. It's not going to be the lead pastor. It's going to be someone on staff. And 
you know, I understand that there are, there are different church models and it's not to say that large churches don't have forms of pastoral care, but certainly the lead pastor in a lot of these stories is more like a CEO, more akin to Steve Jobs than like a, you know, a parish pastor who is in one place, one church through the course of his or her ministry career, and then has the time and opportunity to get to know the people in the church in a, in a deep and abiding way. As you have been researching this celebrity pastorism phenomenon, how do you, how have you seen it develop? Is it quite a recent phenomena? Is it tied into past trends? Um, I'd love to hear what you have found with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I do think of celebrity as a distinctly modern phenomenon, starting, let's say, mid-19th century with the rise of the tools of mass media, starting with newspapers, uh, radio, television. Of course, now we have social media, which has just added jet fuel to these dynamics. Um, But celebrity is inherently rooted in mass media because it allows all of us but especially kind of top leaders to project an image of themselves that draws a crowd, not so much in a physically proximate way, but draws a following. You know, we talk about big someone with a big following. Well, I follow a ton of famous people on the internet, but I have no, you know, and they they might say and write things that inspire me or I, I draw and you know teaching from, but I don't really know them in the way that hopefully I would know uh, my pastor or kind of a primary spiritual teacher or mentor in my life. Evangelicalism in particular, I would say really, you know, starting with the first um, kind of modern evangelists, people like Dwight Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, Billy Graham was actually very pragmatic and progressive in his use and embrace of mass media. I would say he's really the the kind of primary or exemplar uh, evangelical celebrity. Evangelicals have a pragmatic streak in the movement because the the rationale is that we want to use whatever tools that are at our disposal to reach as many people as possible with the gospel. And so Billy Graham, very early in his ministry career, adopted radio, you know, started broadcasting his crusades all over the world. Many people would say they came to Christ because of seeing or hearing a Billy Graham crusade. So it is distinctly evangelical. I wonder if we are in a time, at least in the American evangelical movement, where we're starting to grapple with the reality that these tools are not neutral. Uh, They change the message. They change how we understand the gospel. They change how we understand uh, God's call upon our lives. And there is bad fruit born of these tools as well. Um, the lack of proximity, but also confusing kind of spiritual messages with a form of entertainment, uh, kind of consumerist model of discipleship. So I'm hopeful that we're now at this place where leaders in the movement can say, yeah, we've adopted these tools, but they haven't been neutral. They have come, they've imported certain things into the work we're trying to do that run counter to the the core of Christian faith. And so how can we course correct? Thanks, Caitlin. I really, really appreciate your analysis of the um, evangelical engagement with those cultural tools of mass media. 
Um, interesting something you just said then about consumerism and that nature of um, social media and mass media as uh, being a projection device for mm. a, a person that persona or a, a something that people want them to see. And at the same time, um, I think you, you talk, in the book, you talk about fans uh, consuming that those projections, they, they consume and they, and they uh, engage with just the projection itself. What does that do for mm. us as Christians? Uh, uh, I'm interested in, in and mm. then how does that play itself out in, um, in our more fragmented church uh, these days? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think when we buy into fan culture, when it comes to, you know, our favorite Christian leaders, writers, influencers, we are putting expectations on flesh and blood people that no actual human can bear. <laughs> um, that in a way we're we're looking to those people to model the Christian life perfectly, almost so that we don't have to. Uh, there's something about putting someone on a pedestal that that is, you know, in a healthy way could be related to mentorship or inspiration. Like if I'm a young person is setting out in my adult life and I'm not sure, um, you know, I'm not sure how to serve God most effectively. This person out here has an amazing story and a, an amazing message and they inspire me and motivate me to serve God more fully. But it can also, that fandom can also have the opposite effect of uh, demotivating me to figure out what it means to live out the Christian faith in my particular context. And I think about, you know, as we become fixated on kind of people out there, you know, writers, pastors, leaders, whatever, I, I wonder if that kind of takes our attention away from the people in our midst, you know, by, if I'm watching a, you know, powerful uh, conference that's live streaming and there are tens of thousands of people there. And I think of that as like my primary spiritual content for the week or something. How does that then shape how I think about the rather boring and sometimes annoying people in my congregation <laughs> who I am nonetheless called to learn how to live Christian life with and among. Um, so I think about attention, you know, and and the ways that fandom can divert our attention in unhealthy ways. When somebody that we've put on a platform, you know, if if it comes to be that they have a moral failing, they misuse their power, something happens. Um, you know, some a lot of these cases, it's that they couldn't stand, they couldn't withstand the spotlight. <laughs> There's something about the fandom culture was too much pressure. It was it was too much to bear. Um, <clears throat> that can be very personally devastating. You know, if that's somebody that we've looked up to, that's been a model. I know this happened for many people with Ravi Zacharias, world-renowned apologist. Um, lots of people look to him as a mentor or hero when the truth of his, the extent of his abuse comes out, you know, not even months after his death. How do we even begin to understand his legacy and his impact on us? You know, kind of remember, I think in those moments, it's the sobering reminder that we don't actually know so many of the heroes of the faith. You know, we don't we don't really know these celebrity leaders, how they act behind closed doors. We can't really attest to their integrity. And it's not an argument to be suspicious, kind of inherently or skeptical, but I think it is 
a kind of sobering reminder that the best way to know anybody is to spend time with them. And the apparatus of celebrity means like we can't actually spend time with these people. We can't actually know them in a deep and abiding way. And that then gives us a a proper check on our affections and our attention um, to, to appreciate someone's work, but also recognize um, I don't know this person, you know, I, and I, I'm not going to be able to know this person. I can appreciate their work, but I can't attest to their character over the long haul. I'm curious what you would say to, you know, pastors, uh, perhaps who are, you know, experiencing some growth and of course the, the, the paradigm of like, you know, ascending on that platform is, well, this is a work of a spirit, right? Um, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, God is doing, look at the numbers, you know, look at what's going on. And if, uh, if it is potentially, you know, leading down a path towards uh, celebrity, uh, you know, um, less proximity, greater distance, uh, remoteness from this uh, person as like, you know, their platform is is rising and their church is growing. And what should be the paradigm if it's not like, oh, this is a work of the spirit? Like, how should we mm-hmm. like reframe that in, in order to provide some checks and balances to the mm-hmm. propping up of celebrity status? Mm-hmm. So yeah, if your church is growing, but you don't want to throw out like, well, clearly God is blessing everything that we're doing and therefore that justifies everything we're doing. And celebrity can just be another thing that we use to cooperate with God and what God is doing in our... Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine it's exciting to be a part of a church that's growing, right? I, I mean, my my argument in the book isn't against church growth per se. I do think that we do tend to conflate church growth with the work of the spirit. And we we should certainly interrogate that. I wonder about a couple of things. I mean, if you have healthy spiritual leaders in place and they see this coming down the pipeline and they feel this pressure to continue the growth, is there a way to say, I see these temptations coming and I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't want to become that. I don't want to set myself or other leaders up to fail. How do we test our accountability structures to make sure that they're real? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know any church leaders who would say accountability isn't important. Like everybody knows, yes, of course, accountability we have. But <clears throat> in some of these stories of, of fallen leaders, when you dig below the surface of the accountability structures that were in place, well, the elder board is like stacked with the person's close friends or fans or family members. There's not an appropriate uh, lack, there, there's too much conflict of interest for the person to be able to say no to the top leader, right? That was certainly a dynamic with Willow Creek. The church did an investigative deep dive after everything tumbled out in 2018 and 2019. And they, the report just found, you know, Bill was our celebrity. And for a lot of these people, Bill was the man who brought me to faith. Bill was like a father figure, How do you really challenge the power of somebody who's had such an outsized positive influence in your life or who you look to? So some of this is getting real about accountability and making sure that there's not, that there's an appropriate kind of an an emotional, spiritual distance between the people who are asked to be holding the leader accountable and the specific leader. I would also think some of this is if you find that the church is growing 
by dint of the communicatory power of the lead pastor, maybe that's a great time for the lead pastor to say, I'm going to start rotating other people in. You know, it's it's great that people are responding to what I have to say, but I don't want to start believing or have our church start believing that this all rises or falls on my Sunday morning performance, like on my showing up Sunday morning. How do we normalize as a church culture that power is distributed among many different preachers and speakers who, you know, some of them may not be the flashiest or most entertaining or have the greatest anecdotes, but they are called and equipped to preach the word for the edification of the church. And we don't want to normalize the sense that it's all about the one person and their flashy sermon. I know that part of the argument that comes up regarding church growth is when do you branch out and break off? You know, when do you start to plant? And I, at different churches, different denominations or organizations have different models for that. But, you know, I've heard someone who reviewed my book somewhat critically. <laughs> um, I'm not hanging on to it or anything. It's just, <laughs> I've totally gotten over it. But uh, his review suggested if a church gets to 500 members, you kind of automatically default, you break off, you know, there's a, there's a new plant. There are more people sent out to create, you know, smaller bodies in different contexts. I don't know if that's the right model for every church or denomination, but I think there's something appealing about being intentional about planting uh, and saying, we want to keep this to a human size. We want to keep this to a size where humans can know other humans, (laughs) because we believe as Christians that our life together in proximate community is the warp and woof of the life of discipleship. And we recognize that there are real hindrances to that life together when a church gets too big, you know. One of the things I really appreciated in the book, um, which dovetails with some of what you were just saying, is you do have this focus on what it looks like to have um, a healthy institution, which, by the way, I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about the book is it's not just overly harrowing and dark mm. and all of that. Like there, there's always a hopefulness and there's always, I mean, I feel like it's incredibly fair in the way that you depict various figures and even their strengths, which I, I'm sure I mean, you know, some people could could be uncomfortable with a, mm-hmm. a more moderate picture, but I feel like you're very fair. Um, but nevertheless, um, there's a lot in there um, or there's a chapter in there about healthy institutions and trying to move beyond this kind of elevation of a figure. I wonder if you could say a little bit more. I mean, in recent months, I mean, we're all in higher education and we've seen institutions that have similar dynamics to some of the ones that you described at Willow Creek. I mean, Northern Seminary has, of course, been the Mm -hmm. very public instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be willing to expand Mm -hmm. a little bit? Yeah, well, it's probably clear in the book that I am pro-institution because I think institutions are ways that a a mission, um, good work in the world can sustain itself beyond the life of a particular founder, leader, regardless of how dynamic they are, um, that what we are doing together doesn't rise or fall on having the one person as great of a leader as they might be kind of in in that central leadership position. 
we are facing at, at all levels of American life, a deep crisis of institutions. There is deep distrust of institutions. Um, you know, not a day goes by. Well, that's an exaggeration, but not a week goes by that I don't hear something about you can't trust, you know, mainstream media, you can't trust uh, our news sources. It used to be even 20, 30 years ago, most Americans watched or read or listened to the same three or four top news organizations. And there was a consensus about what was being reported. This is more or less what we believe to be true. <laughs> um, that's not true anymore. Everybody can find their own source of truth, uh, source of information on the internet. Um, and to be fair, it some of that is that, you know, mainstream media outlets haven't always gotten it right. And that that breeds distrust. But there's a deep crisis of trust with institutions and in in the decline of institution and the kind of commitment to institutions and institutional mindset, you have the rise of charismatic figures, personas who, you know, with one tweet, with one statement, with one podcast interview can make or break so much of what people within the institution have been working toward. So there's there's a real there's kind of an unfairness, especially if you're in an institution where you're trying to just do the work, um, trying to stay committed, trying to serve. And the one charismatic celebrity figure does or says something that kind of capsizes so much of that good work. At the same time, you know, there's this growing interest or fascination with or fixation on uh, demagogues, ideological figureheads. Um, people are looking for guidance. They're looking for truth. They're looking for something to hang their identity on. And it's it's a bit simplistic, but I think what we used to find in our institutional life together, our commitment to different associations, organizations, churches, even family, many of our neighbors are now finding in an attachment to a particular figure. Yeah. And so I I feel for the people who are in unhealthy institutions where so much is rising or falling on the one particular figure, because the point of an institution is that it doesn't need to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. So COVID has caused in many industries a, a very great leveling of organizations where uh, people are able to to both work from home, uh, engage in different uh, areas of the organization. It's flattened out a lot of the hierarchy uh, therein. But at the same time, it seems to have almost advanced the um, consumer model of our broader social media culture. Hmm. Uh, interested in in interesting how you see that playing out within the church, uh, that dynamic of um, greater accessibility and greater leveling, but also hmm. uh, greater consumerism uh, in our post-COVID era. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about an anecdote I heard from actually a, a parish, Anglican parish priest working in the UK who was saying that during COVID, you know, her church and many other churches, of course, had some kind of online component, you know, lots of people were tuning in on Zoom. And this, I don't know if you remember, maybe we've all tried to block it out. In the early stages of the pandemic, it was like, we can do Zoom church. It'll be great. <laughs> and um, 
I have no doubt that that kind of model has served a lot of people. It's possible that people who wouldn't show up for in person for Sunday morning worship or can't show up in Sunday morning worship for various reasons found you know spiritual sustenance in that time. This pastor though was also saying those people don't they they're not making the transition to in person worship now that the restrictions are down, rates of infection are down. How do you uh transition somebody from a Zoom church consumer to an in-person church participant. And it's hard because a consumerist model of how we spend our time, how we spend our money, relationships, um, it's the water we swim in, right? And so I think church leaders have to paint a vision of life together in person that um, that outweighs the convenience and ease that most of us are accustomed to in terms of our decision-making. What if what pastors and other church leaders are calling people to is actually harder or has more at stake, but is also richer and more rewarding in the long run? And some of this just comes down to what do our, what are our churches like? Like, are, do our churches actually reflect a compelling vision of the gospel and of Christian life together um, that makes people want to buy in, that makes people want to say, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm part of this community. Yeah. It is inconvenient to be here or yeah, I'd rather be at Sunday brunch. That's, <laughs> that's like the number one evangelistic problem in New York city is that, you know, brunch is just really great and ubiquitous. Um, so yeah, I think some of this is turning do we have a vision and way of doing the Christian life that is more compelling and more beautiful than what someone could kind of opt in for online and then check out of when it no longer is convenient? Yeah. And more a comment than a question, but I mean, I think that also connects with the suspicion around institutions that um, it's, there's a, an inherent suspicion that you have to overcome to see that the institution itself would be a valuable thing to participate in. That's mm -hmm. really good, Caitlin. Thank you. I've been trying to think about this from the UK context, um, because I think the way celebrity pastor stuff plays out here is that there, there are a lot of similarities to the US context, but it's just on such a smaller scale. And so even the comment about when a church reaches 500, mm -hmm. <laughs> it needs to split. I mean, that's, that's some of our most influential churches are sort of at that number um, and, and have those celebrity issues of people just going there because of who the rector is or, or because of um, they're known as the sound church and that's where everyone should go. Um, and I guess it's just thinking about how those patterns trickle down and um and play out at every level of church life and I, I think what you're saying about modeling a, a healthy way of life together is really key to that I guess do you see in your study of celebrity is do you think there's anything positive that's come out of this phenomena so I grew up evangelical and I suppose it's in my blood. I'll just say that <laughs> evangelicalism is in my blood. And I grew up very much 
in a church and subculture that placed a premium value on bringing people to Jesus. And that is because evangelicalism is in my blood. There, there is still a part of me that wonders if it's all worth it because I have no doubt, for example, I mean, going back to Billy Graham and it should be said, Billy Graham, um, seemed very aware of the temptations that could come with his celebrity and early on in his ministry created some, some rules and guidelines around how he would lead and how other, you know, association members would lead that helped to curtail that. So I think of him as a very in, you know, he was not without problems. He would say that and acknowledge that later in his life. But I do think about his desire to reach people all over the world with the good news of Jesus and the millions and millions of people who heard the gospel because Graham was willing to use these tools pretty early on, like pretty, again, pretty progressive in his approach. So I think that, you know, we can celebrate anytime someone comes to faith in Christ and we believe that God works through flawed human channels and models to accomplish God's purposes in the world. I'm I'm having trouble thinking of other positives. <laughs> um yeah, I'm having trouble thinking of other positives. I wonder if I could um jump in then and um what one of the things that Sydney brought up is the is the how the different cultural environment of the UK has possibly given rise to it playing out differently uh, in the UK. And certainly, as we've seen in, in more recent weeks, uh, the UK is not immune uh, to these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly when in my, certainly when I was growing up, the the large evangelical figures of British evangelicalism, uh, John Stott, Dick Lucas and others, um, certainly had uh, significant media engagement, uh, but mm -hmm. not in the same way, in the same platforming as uh, we see in the US and certainly not with Billy, Billy Graham. And we we know of the, the well-publicized disputes between uh, John Stott and Billy Graham over um, some of these sorts of questions. Interested in, in then what some of the cultural, it, it, because it seems that it's not just a a cultural phenomenon of the leader, but a cultural phenomenon of the fan as well. Mm -hmm. um, the, the social group influences the leader um, in a back and forth fashion. Um, what's what is, yeah? I guess I guess what what are the unique characteristics of that American model that you've been researching, mm. which which admittedly seem does seem to be spreading far and wide, um, and and how does that play into also the personality of the leader? Um, mm. and as a and the personality of the fan. Yeah, well, I write in the book about the ways that culture war seems to have fueled some of our attachment to celebrity figures. Many evangelicals in the US in the last 40, 50 years have felt kind of culturally, politically marginalized, wonder, you know, is there going to be a seat at the table for us? And I think that can fuel an interest in having a celebrity figure to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with celebrities or, or big personalities that are perceived to be against the church or anti-God or secular, uh, you know, very much 
growing up, I was taught a lot about, <laughs> um, you know, bad people and godless secularists and all of that. And, and the Christians who seem to be standing athwart the rise of secularism, which is very real, no doubt, you know, um, were people with big platforms. And so I think two of the sense among many American Christians, maybe Americans are just more image conscious or like shallow <laughs> than our British counterparts. But the cool factor, you know, this was very much uh, a huge dynamic in the story of Hillsong. Obviously, you know, Hillsong is a global, was a global church phenomenon, but had a very specific permutation in the U.S. where pastors were essentially hired to be the cool celebrity pastor. And that was seen as a, a way to convey that being a Christian who loves Jesus, believes the Bible, you know, has maybe a pretty traditional ethics in many ways is still hip. <laughs> like You don't have to check your cool factor at the door or your, you know, $500 leather jacket at the door if you want to become a Christian. Like we, we are actually showing you that you can be a Christian and also be friends with Justin Bieber and travel all over the world, going to conferences and clubs. And you're also doing that all for Jesus. So I, I think about, yeah, culture war, the sense of cultural marginalization and a fascination with cool that I don't know is as true in other contexts in terms of kind of personality. I mean, it is way too simplistic to say, oh, all these guys are narcissists, right? Like we, th we use that word a lot. Of course, Chuck DeGrote has done, you know, uh, pastoral care expert, uh, wrote a great book several years ago called When Narcissism Comes to Church that gets into some of this kind of psychological profile of, of pastors. Um, you know, it's, it's simplistic to write all of these people off as narcissists. And at the same time, he has found, Chuck has found in his research, um, elevations, I think is the word he used, <laughs> elevated tendencies around grandiosity and entitlement. And I, I think that that is fascinating. Just, you may not be a diagnosable narcissist, like with narcissistic personality disorder, but grandiosity and entitlement. Yeah, that, that seems like a common thread <laughs> in, in some of these stories. And gosh, if you are told at a very young age, maybe you're 23, just came out of seminary, maybe you didn't go to seminary, maybe you dropped out of seminary because you were told like you have the drive and the passion and the gifts to grow a big church, to lead a church, you're ready and equipped. We want you at the helm. Uh, how, how could you not have some kind of sense of uh, grandiosity or entitlement? I mean, the, the system has kind of bred those latent uh, impulses within you that kind of asks you to, you know, when when maybe the classical Christian tradition might ask you to keep those things in check and to interrogate and examine them, uh, much of the American church says, no, we we want you to lean in <laughs> to these impulses um, because we have that too, you know, Chuck writes about something called collective narcissism, where a, a church, an institution can start to 
become enmeshed with the personality and the ego of the lead pastor. So like, we know we're great because our pastor is great. The pastor knows they're great because the church thinks it's great. It's very unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. It's in- interesting. You mentioned Hillsong um, as an Australian uh Hillsong was always on the radar when when I was growing up because of their music and things like that. But when the Carl Lentz thing came out, I think a lot of Australian Australians in general reacted against it simply because that form of uh, celebrity just is a bit anathema to Australians. We we like to cut down the tall poppies rather than to, uh-huh. to lift them up. You are um, not you are not the only Australian who has used that very analogy to describe a kind of aversion to mm, self-promotion, a kind of flashiness. And Americans just love that. Like <laughs> we have no problem with people being self-promotional and grandiose in public. Yeah. It, it it's in in Australia we call it tall poppy syndrome. Uh the, mm. the nature of cutting down those who lift themselves up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On that point about, you know, they might not be diagnosed as narcissists and getting into some of the personality uh, traits and how, you know, maybe in American culture, the entitlement and grandiosity is sort of baked in. I'm curious about the the personality of these uh, personas a little bit, a little bit more, though. Um, I'm a big fan of the Enneagram. So when I think about, you know, the, the types of leaders who might be attracted to mm-hmm. the grandiosity or whatever, I think of maybe three, three Enneagram types in particular. And I'm being a little bit reductionistic, perhaps, in thinking like this. But I think you know, sevens, and I'm a seven. So I think I think sevens might be attracted to this, uh, eights and threes. Um, and you know, it could be wrong. It could be others could be all of them. Right. But I, I, I think about those three in particular, and I'm wondering, cause I, I know from your website that you're an Enneagram three, you identify as an Enneagram three. I'm curious mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts about how to think about, you know, the Enneagram at its best, I think is, is a tool for self-awareness and self-growth. I, I I'm wondering what thoughts you might have about mm. the personality of pastors and the type of, you know, constructive work, uh, that, that mm. needs, that needs to be done, you know, th- threes in health go in certain directions, sevens in health, et cetera. Um, you know, how should, you know, pastors be sort of thinking about that, uh, inclination of their mm-hmm, personality mm-hmm. towards these things uh, mm-hmm. a, bit, a bit more? Yes. Well, I guess I put it out on my website that (laughs) I'm into the Enneagram and that I'm a three with a four wing. So I will, I will camp out on the three, maybe, you know, self selfishly, but it's the type that I kind of, you know, know the most about. And in one of the classic Enneagram books, the writer notes that, or, or makes the observation that American culture is kind of a type three culture um, in terms of believing a myth about success, accomplishment, doing over being, always on the go, being very busy, kind of uh, pro- producing. <laughs> um, you know, we, our economic system relies on a, creating a lot of threes. And so that's where I, I think you see for church leaders, the, you know, we don't have time for being like, that's not productive or sexy, or that's not going to lead to growth. We need someone to come in and, and steer us toward success, like up and to the right. That's the direction that most threes want to go to. 
of course the the deeper wound or desire um or the the deeper um blind spot of a three is actually attending to uh being overdoing attending to uh quiet <laughs> development uh realizing that you are more than what you do or accomplish that your belovedness and worth is not all about what you do and accomplish uh you are beloved by the lord and by other people simply because of who you are not because of what you do and i imagine that for some of these pastors they haven't they don't believe that yet <laughs> you know and it usually takes some kind of real failure honestly for threes to settle into a different a different mode a, a different way of understanding their value um their their belovedness apart from accomplishment i'm also thinking too of you know, threes go to six in in health and hopefully i'm going to that <laughs> i'm either a, i'm either a three or a six so i'm either an unhealthy six or a healthy three i don't know but the six, you know, the the person who likes security, but for three to go to a six usually means uh, a commitment to, again, institution, organization, cause beyond yourself. It's not just about me and feeling good about myself. I'm I'm driving or pouring out all of this creative, productive energy into something bigger than me, um, and I think. Yeah, I, I think um, that could be the 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 path of health as well for a lot of type of type three pastors. Even if that means, what if our church isn't growing at the same degree that it was? Like, what if it's stagnant? What if our life together feels a little bit quieter or a little boring or not? You know, not as flashy and up and to the right. Maybe our our life together, our church needs to attend to um you know hidden pains and trauma and things that are you know deeply wounded that that usually doesn't kind of get the headline kind of attention but is really deeply core to becoming who we're called to be um and the best of what god has for us so just as a quick little plug chuck's book does have chuck to grow in the narcissism book um has a few pages or like a section where he goes through each of the um, Enneagram types and talks about how narcissism kind of plays out for them. So I found that really instructive because yeah, I would have, I would have put fours, you know, toward the top of the list in terms of, um, these scary personalities, but that's because I'm a four and, uh, self-loathing <laughs> and feelings of distinctiveness are, are, uh, mm. part of our thing. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyways, well, I think about the two as well, which, you know, I imagine many people who are drawn to ministry are type twos, like the the desire to help, to pour out. But the covert narcissism of a two can be, I'm doing this to feel good about myself. I'm doing this so that you feel indebted to me. <laughs> and you could very easily see how that could crop up in, in ministry settings. One of the things that that is really struck me in this conversation is that, uh, you describe the nature of uh, Christian celebrity culture as um, being a, a portrayal of something that is fundamentally inauthentic. 
that that does not necessarily represent uh, the the truth of what's of what is that lies beneath. Um, and and the enneagram goes some way towards being able to to see what lies underneath the skin of, of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just sounded really gruesome, but anyway, we'll leave it. <laughs> um, you peel back the skin layers. Nope. That's yeah, and 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 see the worse. the fleshy undersides. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> it's getting worse. <laughs> yeah, at the end of your book, you highlight several people whose names would be fairly recognizable uh, to the majority of people in the church. People like Eugene Peterson, Dallas Willard, Henry Newen, etc. Uh, and you highlight them because not because of what they have done, but because uh, their call for people to, and, and I quote, um, embrace a life of Christian uh, integrity, humility, and simplicity, and not reinventing the wheel, but mining and gifting us with the riches of the Christian tradition. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting if you could t- just talk about that as the um, as a way out of this sort of mm-hmm. inauthentic nature of our celebrity mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I really... I ended Celebrities for Jesus not with a kind of novel solution. (laughs) And that was very intentional. One, I don't think that, you know, one person is going to fix this with like five easy tips to detoxify your church from celebrity culture, right? These issues are very entrenched. My work in the final portion of the book is really to say like, it is to point to all the people who have been saying, (laughs) who have been calling us back to the richness of the Christian tradition they themselves are pointing back even further, right? Um, but the richness is all there. I, I think the the tools and the path forward for our our American church to become healthier is in the Christian tradition itself. And it's a, a lack of knowledge about that tradition. It's the ways that that tradition um, really challenges so many of our cultural narratives that we've just bought into kind of unwittingly, um, the way that that tradition is, is uncomfortable. (laughs) Like it, you know, it calls to a dying to self. Um, it calls to obscurity and humility. These are all virtues that are kind of a hard sell in cultures that really value like the splashy, the accomplished, the, the, the overnight growth. Um, but yeah, it was important for me to say that I, I'm not offering anything new. I'm really trying to remind readers, to remind other Christians in the American church that the path forward is already available to us. It doesn't require something innovative. You know, I think we're so many, uh, problems that we run into, we, th- we think that they require something like flashy and innovative and programmatic and slick. And it, it, th- that's, this is not that at all. <laughs> like this is, um, this is a life of hidden faithfulness and it's as like simple and as complicated and as challenging and as life altering as that. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for for joining us and for uh, calling us to that simplistic yet complicated uh, vision of the Christian life as opposed to this kind of celebrity culture that we are uh, currently situated in. Just really appreciate your time and everything you shared with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for your thoughtful questions and for this invitation. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. 